Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Hazel Henderson is member in the Club of Rome and founder of Ethical Markets with its Quality of Life Indicators and the Green Transition Scoreboard. She is a world-renowned futurist, evolutionary economist, a worldwide syndicated columnist, consultant on sustainable development, and author of several books that have been translated in numerous languages worldwide. So Hazel, it's a great pleasure to uh, welcome you back to the program. How are you? I am fine. Thank you so much. This is such a good opportunity, isn't it? For Now, I, I, I've got a little thing here, uh, and I need to get it off the screen. Yes, it was asking me whether I wanted to continue the recording, and I'm sure you do. So, <laughs> Yeah, so, that would be great. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so here we are um with um all of these new spikes in the virus in the usa and many states including the state i live in here in florida um where um everything opened up like uh, i live in this tourist city which you know very well saint augustine and we get six million visitors a year and for the last three weeks the whole thing has been almost like it was normal. Everybody walking around, no distancing, no masks, all the bars open, everybody having a good time. And so, of course, that means for people like me, I have to stay um, shut in even more carefully now um, because of all of the additional, you know. So that's going on in uh, Arizona, Texas, and looks like um, it will give our economy another unnecessary big hit because it looks like perhaps Texas is getting ready to shut down again. And so you can imagine we've got 40 million unemployed and uh, a president who doesn't believe in science. And um, I must say, um, I did get a little schadenfreude about his uh, um, big rally yesterday in Arizona and all of those young people using TikTok and uh, they inflated the number of people he thought was coming to about a million and uh, they got this huge uh, arena, you know, with 20,000 seats. And the number of the Tucson, uh, the Arizona police, was there were only 6,200 people there. That's a terribly large number. But they forced them all into the small area so that they could keep the camera on them and not show that all of the stands were empty. So, this is, you know, uh, I grew up in Britain, and this is my beloved adopted country, but um, I am just, uh, it's, it's just the most tragic thing that's, that's going on in this country. And so what's saving the markets, as you know, and causing all of this market spiking is number one is the Fed. There's now seven trillion 
of quantitative easing assets on the Fed's uh, account. And the total amount of stimulus is 11 trillion because the fiscal side now has been taking up its responsibilities, which it sort of left to the Fed for a long time. And so they are now passing all of these multi-trillion dollar um, uh, bills, which we need because there's no other way. If you're, uh, we're a consumer-driven economy, 70% of the economy is consumer spending. And um, if people have no jobs, um, you know, there's no other way of keeping up the uh, aggregate demand and the purchasing power other than practically going back to Milton Friedman's idea, which he called helicopter money, which is you just, you just go up in the helicopter with big bunches of, of dollar bills and throw them out the window. And he always said, okay, if you actually want to stimulate an economy, don't try to go through the money center banks, which the textbooks tell you to do, because it won't trickle down. They'll just send it right offshore into investing in uh, credit default swaps to see which European country is going to have its sovereign bonds hit. You know, and this, it doesn't, the textbooks don't recognize, as you know, the globalization um, of finance. And, uh, and so, so anyway, um, I have been trying for the longest time, as you know, Mariana, to get to the heart of the problem, and that is all the misunderstandings about money. Of course, we print money. Every central bank prints money. That's what they are uh, mandated to do. And there's nothing wrong with printing money as long as you make sure you just don't throw it out there so that it goes right back into the financial system as asset bubbles. And what we're having now is asset bubbles. And of course, you know, we've got a winner's circle now are the fangs, you know, Amazon and Facebook and uh, all the social media. Of course, everybody um, has to operate the way we're doing right now online. And then there's the biotech companies and the hundreds of different approaches to vaccines. And uh, what I can uh, hope, I, I'm really hoping won't happen is what happened when there was a rush to vaccines in the, um, the, the polio epidemic we had in this country, you know, FDR got polio was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And what happened was that one very ambitious company uh, with a lot of investors brought out a polio vaccine without enough uh, testing on a large enough population. And hundreds of children got polio from the vaccine. So, uh, so you know, we don't want to see the same thing happen again. So th those are the kind of winner's circle stocks now, you know, uh, biotech and the fangs. And then um, the other winner's circle, which I'm very happy about, of course, uh, is renewable energy. And I'm just reading a piece in the new uh, edition of The Economist, and they're saying, okay, there's this huge bonanza now um, coming into the financial market of green investing. And 
they point out, as I've been pointing out, and one of the reasons I started Ethical Markets Media was to keep these big pension fund managers and banks and institutional investors honest um, about these so-called green and impact funds. And of course, the problem is that an awful lot of it is, is window dressing and greenwashing. And, you know, you have people like Larry Fink, you know, are sending letters to all of the portfolio companies in their $7 trillion um, uh, account um, and saying, uh, well, you know, uh, you have to be good people and you have to do all of these things and you have to do the stakeholder model now, forget about the shareholders so much. And yet in his own portfolio, he still has a trillion dollars of assets committed to tearing down rainforests for producing meat. And, you know, so I'm very glad that The Economist, there's a big section in The Economist this week, um, and they're saying, okay, um, how do we really uh, make sure that green investing doesn't end up having a bad name and not doing the right thing? And so I agree with them. They say, all right, we have to have carbon taxes. And uh, of course, I've been saying, why only carbon? Why not pollution taxes across the board? Why not make externalities illegal? Why allow accountants to do illegal accounting? Uh, and the interesting thing is that um, Ethical Markets did many surveys a long time ago about um, what kind of taxes the American people would uh, favor. And the, the, uh, the kind of tax that got an 82% um, approval was pollution taxes. Everybody understands that we should tax the bads, you know. And so why they limit it to carbon? I have been um, debating this with so many of my friends in the US, in the investment community, in the business community. Please just call them pollution taxes and you'll win every time. But nobody knows what you mean by a carbon tax. You know, why? I mean, we're all made of carbon. There's nothing wrong with carbon. I mean, we know carbon is extremely useful. And now we're looking at all of the wonderful ways we can capture carbon by doing it nature's way. And that is in restoring soils and bringing back the kind of forest management and agricultural, ecological agriculture and indigenous agriculture, um, which is the way the roots of plants actually capture the ambient carbon and put it back in the soil where it belongs. But, you know, that's too easy. And as all of these big scientists, you know, the people at MIT want another grant and um, they want to have these huge contraptions added to uh, coal-fired power plants to capture the carbon that comes out of the chimney, <laughs> which, is, which is like cutting butter with a chainsaw. <laughs> you know, why, why not just let nature do her job and capture it, you know, because that's the way it's going to be done uh, with uh, uh, all kinds of, you know, uh, uh, reforms to the 
food system. So the two things that I'm concentrating on right now is one, uh, getting um, politicians and the public to understand about how uh, projects like the Green New Deal and all of the stimulus projects, how they actually are always funded. And the, the um, ideology of the oligarchs in this country um, who recruited all of the economists at the University of Chicago and uh, to get the idea that, oh, we can't do any um, big project uh, for the public good unless we first pass the hat and get taxpayers to put money in that they already saved. And of course, that's exactly backwards to how it actually happens. And how it actually happens is that uh, the Congress has the power of the purse. And the Congress decides, okay, um, we are going to, like in FDR's day, we're going to have a new deal. And we're going to build the Hoover Dam. And um, that would never get built by private enterprise. There's no way. And so the way uh, these big projects are always funded is that the Congress passes a law to say, we are going to build the Hoover Dam. We are committed. And then the Treasury says, okay, well, we'll put out bonds and uh, guarantee all kinds of all kinds of guarantees and then the private sector comes in and um, bids for the contracts and and so that's the way it's actually done and uh, and yet the politicians um, have bought into this whole idea that somehow our deficits um, are the problem and we have to keep yeah, we cannot do any project that might raise the deficit Whereas really the thing we have to focus on is inflation. And uh, obviously if you um, have, if the Congress puts uh, um, into law a project which, uh, which extend, overextends the actual physical realities of the resource base and the, um, the population and the talent and do we have enough doctors or do we have enough engineers, that's what causes inflation. And so I have been trying for the longest time to get that word across and to get people to understand that that's actually the way the projects are, are funded is um, by a decree and not by taxing and borrowing. And luckily enough, there is a wonderful new book, which I'm about to write a review of, by the leading proponent of this new thinking, which is, thank heavens, finally catching up uh, in the economics profession called um, Modern Monetary Theory. And uh, Stephanie Kelton is one of its leading proponents. And she has just written a new book called The Deficit Myth, She's making incredible waves and getting people to understand that if we didn't fund um, the future, all the green infrastructure we need and all of those big projects, then um, if, if they haven't funded the Hoover Dam, Los Angeles would still be a village. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's all so obvious. So anyway, 
um, that, that's my big focus now. Um, and, you know, you and I have been on these uh, seminars with our colleagues at the Club of Rome and the World Academy on the future of money and try, trying to get people to understand. So um, I know you have written uh, and you have a new book coming out, which I'm thrilled about. And so I know we agree uh, tremendously and I, I love your approach to integrative investing because it means uh, expanding the lens and looking at the whole picture before you put the money in. So what do you think, Marianne? Well, absolutely. As you know, I'm coming, I'm approaching all of this from the early stage investing, which, uh, which is something that is much more easier to control and influence and, uh, and bring about change because you have smaller teams and you have younger people, you have uh, more flexible minds, I, I should say, uh, which of course uh, does apply to you and, and, and us. So not all older people are inflexible in their thinking. But uh, given the fact that 55% of all the GDP is created by small and medium enterprises, and they are creating the largest amounts of jobs, not the big corporations, but the small ones, <clears throat> starting to shift that thinking from uh, for profit only toward an integration between people, planet, and profit, you know, you know to summarize uh, somewhat. Yeah. Uh, is uh, a bottom-up approach, is um, my approach to show that it can be done in a different way. Um, yes. you know, what I call integral sustainability. Yes, exactly. Um, so we're totally on the same page. Excuse me? We're totally on the same page. That's why you're on our advisory board and I'm on yours. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, um, but you full disclosure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You said that there are two things that you would uh, recommend moving forward on how to jumpstart the economy after uh, COVID-19. So uh, the first one was the uh, influence the politicians and get the Congress to uh, to mandate uh, what needs to be done. And what was the second? For some reason, I missed that one. Oh, yes. And that is reform of the food, the global food system. Right. And okay. the global mm -hmm. food system, um, I can go on at length about this and bore everybody for the last two years. And that is that we have this crazy global food system based on five uh, very vulnerable monocultured cereal crops corn, wheat, soybeans, rice, alfalfa, you know, that are traded in the com commodity trading uh, desks all over the world. And basically, um, this agrochemical industrial system for food production and sales and promotion, which uses advertising and marketing of junk foods and all of this, you know. Um, uh, okay, there's a lot of uh, reform in the system now, uh, but they still haven't got to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is that all of our food is uh, grown on 3% of the planet's fresh water, which is dwindling very rapidly for, because of climate change. And yet, we on planet Earth is the water planet. We're not short of water. Seven, ninety-seven percent of the water on the planet happens to be saline, 
And guess what? The other half of the planet's food kingdom, plant kingdom, are salt-loving food plants, which are highly nutritious, have complete proteins, have mineral profiles which are perfectly suited to the human body. And guess what? Some of them have made it into the supermarkets. Uh, everybody knows the grain, uh, quinoa, delicious grain, which uh, grows wild on the salt flats of, around Lake Titicaca in Bolivia, and actually grows all over the world, anywhere there is salty water and desert land. Guess what? Um, there is also China's salt-tolerant rice, which um, almost grows on beaches in southern China and is actually um, more nutritious and delicious and, uh, and has a higher market value than regular rice. And the new one that um, uh, I have uh, just participated in a seminar at Arizona State University is on the next salt-loving plant, which we can really commercialize now which is called salicornia, and it's called otherwise known as a sea asparagus. And there are gourmet chefs creating delicious dishes. You know, you can cook it or you can put it in salads. Um, it's, um, it's served in gourmet restaurants. And so this is purely a marketing problem. It's not even, a, it's not a financial problem. And the reason I say that is because now, uh, as you know, there's a double-digit growth worldwide of the shift to plant-based foods and beverages. There are about 100 startup companies in this area, which we follow quite closely. A couple of them have made into IPOs, you know, like Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods is the next one. And then there are all the companies that um, are committed to creating meat from stem cells in the laboratory. And their commitment is uh, no human meat food in diets will ever be produced from an animal anymore. It will just be produced from the petri dishes of the animal's stem cells. And so why um, are all of these investors now um, putting the global um, plant-based food sector into double-digit growth. And it, it's growing, you know, 10 times faster than the, um, the regular food um, system. And, uh, and basically, the group we work with, um, based in Britain, is a consortium of investment groups all over the world, including some big sovereign wealth funds like the one in Singapore, you know, Temasek. And uh, they are uh, committed animal rights people. They are vegans and vegetarians. And as you know, many, many people in Asia, you know, these cultures are largely vegetarian anyway, in India and a lot uh, in, in Asian countries. And so their assets under management uh, in this business now uh, are 21 trillion dollars with a T. And that's why they're moving the, mar the market so fast, because not only are they investing in all these startups, 
but they are also shorting the 16 biggest meat producers that are tearing down the rainforest for cattle and alpha and growing feed, you know, for, for cows. Uh, and the reason that all this comes together in a very integrated and systemic way is that all of this animal uh, factory farming, which is going on with chickens and uh, hogs and now really spreading viruses and all kinds of terrible things, uh, basically accounts with 15% of all of the greenhouse gases being emitted in the world. So shifting to salt-loving plants and uh, the 400 overlooked food uh, plants that just, you know, nobody takes, pays any attention to because the big boys don't. Um, basically, uh, that change could actually bend the ambient CO2 level on the planet uh, in the next 10 years uh, that the IPCC says is the timeline. And so it's plenty of money. See, there's 21 trillion of assets under management uh, being pumped into this thing. All we need um, is to get over the theory-induced blindness. You know, this is one of the cognitive biases that um, Daniel Kahneman talks about in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And the cognitive bias um, of all of the academic institutes and uh, all across the board um, is that they don't think about saltwater plants. And they, don't, and they don't realize there's no shortage of water. Just like there's no shortage of money, there's no shortage of water. Uh, and that these plants could also grow on scrubland, desert land, that's not being used currently, and they could conserve the precious fresh water for human drinking and, and, and washing <laughs> what we need it for. So, I mean, we have a video on ethicalmarkets.com playing right now on our homepage called Investing in Saltwater Agriculture, the next big thing. So let's overcome the theory-induced blindness. <laughs> Perfectly. Thank you for that. That's really um, a beautiful outlook on uh, what we could do today uh, in, in trying to shift that uh, old uh, change, uh, old thinking. So yeah. how do you think what what kind of economic models do you think would help us if we adopted them uh, bring about this shift? Because obviously there's something in there that prevents us from, from, from changing. Do you think, do you think that the market will regulate it just as much as you um, pointed out to the impossible burger or the technology-driven uh, uh, agriculture that we see? Is that a way that you think will happen? Or do you think that our politicians and, and regulators will get it so that we could accelerate that? So is it a free market-driven uh, change or is it intentional? Okay, well, the, the first thing, uh, the first thing we have to do is to understand the truth uh, that in all the issues that we're dealing with today, whether it's racism, sexism, misogyny, 
um, poverty, inequality, climate change, pandemics. Um, it, it's basically all about power and how power is distributed in societies. And then the different value systems and sets of principles that, um, uh, that incentivize the population. That's where uh, understanding money is so important because the powerful in any country, um, they accumulate power in some way and then they um, weaponize the uh, economy and the money system. And uh, once you force everybody to uh, run as if money is the only thing that matters um, and sacrifice all of the other values around money, um, then what you've done really with all of the metrics, GDP, all of the statistical indicators, I call them uh, basically, if you put that uh, set of principles into running your society, put that in the hard drive that's running the society, the operating system, what you get is the seven deadly sins. I mean, think about it. The textbook economic model, still taught in most textbooks, is that humans are competitive, selfish, acquisitive, uh, you know, all, I mean, come on. And yet, um, most societies all throughout human history have uh, operated on another set of operating principles, which are systemic and integrated. And that's called the golden rule. Don't do anything to anybody that you wouldn't want to have done to yourself. That is a perfect system statement. And it's incorporated now very much in the United Nations uh, steering mechanism, which is taking over from GDP. And that is the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, 17 integrated, interrelated human goals ratified by 193 countries, uh, um, in, in New York at the UN in, 19, uh, in 2015 that represent what most people in the world actually think is the way we should operate. This is our highest value system. Every single religious tradition and spiritual tradition um, is about don't do anything uh, to harm anybody else uh, because uh, it might rebound to harm you. And so uh, I, I like to, to put things um, in very simple terms, which is one of the reasons I like to work in media. And let's put that down to a bumper sticker. Steering societies away from GDP toward the SDGs. And so um, basically that's the model and throw out the textbooks and forget about the 19th century debates between communism and capitalism and socialism and anarchism and populism. All of that languaging um, is unhelpful. And there is actually nothing wrong with markets. 
human beings have been doing markets since we came out of the trees. You know, I, I loved um, Carl Polanyi's first book. Uh, I also loved The, the Great tra uh, Transition. But his earlier book, and I, I knew him and was a friend of his wife's. Uh, she invited me to, up to stay with her in Toronto after he passed away. And his first book uh, was all about um, natural markets in human societies. And his examples were like the Polynesian traders um, that went all across these Pacific islands in canoes and their currency was shells. And then Native Americans, their currency uh, for all the trading they did all over the Americas uh, was wampum. Which, which you know basically strips of leather, and uh, and then even in Britain um, in the 18th century they used tally sticks, um, you know actually sticks of wood, you know, uh, saying who owed what to whom. So the reason I called my company Ethical Markets Media and started it um, in 2004 and fund it myself, you know, from royalties from my books and our TV shows and everything. We don't take advertising so that I can totally tell the truth exactly as I see it. And uh, basically, uh, I wanted to lay out why markets uh, are very useful. And as long as they are based on trust and a transparency and fidelity in contractual contracts and agreements, um, and they're driven by the golden rule, then markets evolve in very useful ways. I mean, if, if Adam Smith came back today, um, he wouldn't recognize um, green markets. Um, he wouldn't recognize social markets. Uh, like you know, the, uh, he wouldn't know. He wouldn't understand about green bonds. Um, so markets can evolve um, to uh, reflect our highest values and incentivize our populations in in a very futuristic, positive way. So let's not throw out markets. Let's just throw out all the garbage, uh, ideological language, and throw out those old economic textbooks. So how do we do that? Because as you say, we, we are actually exporting a model that has been proven not to work properly ever since the financial crisis. We know that whatever we've been teaching uh, in our MBA programs, uh, you know, only worked in part. So how do we bring about that transformation? You know, is COVID-19 something that we could actually leverage uh, to wake up and bring about the policies and the regulations and the laws that are needed in order to transform? Or is something else that should be happening there? What, what is your view on it? Because I really, I, I totally get you. And the question is, do we, if we listen to science, we only have 10 years to bring the necessary changes in order to um, save ourselves from uh, disastrous climate uh, changes. So yes. are we going to use those 10 years to bring about significant transformation or uh, are we going to leave it up to the markets to, to well, do that? I think, in which case uh, it might take much longer. 
I think that um, basically um, nature is now, the planet is teaching humans directly. And it's giving us lots of kicks in the pants, uh, whether it's fires or floods or more powerful hurricanes or sea level rise. And, uh, and so basically, um, we created the pandemics, we humans, by our behavior, we created them. And what the planet is trying to say um, with this latest wake-up call, which is the uh, coronavirus, uh, is don't chop down forests and don't kill and trade and eat animals. Pretty simple. I mean, we're finding now that the slaughterhouses and um, the meatpacking operations in the U.S. are all um, virus hotspots. Um, and if you talk to any ecologist, um, they will tell you that um, the, the, the virus we have right now, COVID-19, um, uh, will be with us uh, forever. We're not going to be able to stamp it out. And um, it will be followed by many, many other viruses. And that uh, viruses actually um, uh, serve a purpose in the biosphere. Uh, and if you look at the evolution of um, human beings, our bodies, about 10% of the evolution, the good evolution, uh, the, um, basically uh, the, the changes uh, that have been caused by viral infections um, actually uh, have produced about 10% of the mutations which have made our brains larger, um, which have enabled us to stand on, walk on two feet, um, and so we, we don't understand our relationship with viruses. I mean, I sit out in my backyard in the evening uh, and I watch all the bats. I adore watching the bats. I wouldn't think of eating them. See, bats, are, uh, bats have hundreds of viruses. It'd be terrifying if they got into the human body. But I'm not about to, to catch a bat and eat it. You see, and so if you have these wet markets, you know, where you have animals there um, that eat bats, like pangolins, then you, you're going to have viruses jump to human beings. And I just reconnected with a, a friend of mine, Dr. Larry Brilliant, um, who was um, advisor to Google, you know, the, the uh, Google Venture Fund. And... Um, I remember the last time Larry called me, you know, we had him at one, one of our first TV shows um, because he helped eliminate smallpox. And he called me about the H1N1 uh, virus. And Google at that time uh, was way ahead of all of the CDC and the WHO uh, because they were tracking um, uh, uh, keywords on their search engines. Uh, and they knew that H1N1 was very widely uh, distributed and was going to be a real problem. And so uh, he called me and told me all this and said, you know, 
uh, uh, we really need a lot of public education. See, a lot of this today um, is about public education and changing the messages that people get. And as I've said in a lot of my writing, uh, I, in, in Building a Win-Win World, chapter, or chapter five of Building a Win-Win World um, was uh, all about the fact that we now live in mediocracies doesn't matter what form of government we think we live under. Um, we live in mediocracies and attention economies. And so throw out the old textbooks. I never heard of anything like this, you know. Uh, and yet you know that the algorithms that all the search engines use are about capturing people's attention and holding people's attention on that screen so they can sell them junk. And so, uh, so some of the, the cutting edge reforms are not only the reform of the food system, which is really the biggie, and exposing uh, the, uh, the monopoly of our food system um, by money-making um, commodity traders, you know, and the five big companies, you know. And so there's the concentration um, of power in, you have to watch that very carefully. We're looking now at the concentration of power in the social media companies, the FANGs, you know, whether it's Amazon or Facebook or Microsoft or Google, Alphabet, um, whatever. Um, basically, they have to be broken up. And you find that um, both sides of the aisle in the US Congress are absolutely agreed about their holding hearings as we speak about antitrust uh, legislation to break these companies up. Oh my God, you know, Zuckerberg is going crazy. You know, this is terrible. You know, Sheryl Sandberg going on TV and all of this. And yet I remember when I was a, a science advisor in Washington and I spent six years as a cabinet level science policy wonk in Washington. Uh, and basically during that time, um, we broke up AT&T. You know, that was the telephone monopoly, Ma Bell. And everybody said, oh my God, this is like the end of the world. And what actually happened? Well, we ended up with five baby bells, many more jobs, lots more innovation, and why would it be any different breaking up Facebook and breaking up, I mean, Amazon must be broken up because they're just gobbling up all of the retail companies in the world because we were all stuck at home and I'm as bad as anybody else. Um, uh, I've been buying stuff on Amazon because I'm not allowed to go to the store. So, so you see, it's all about power and we don't have to think about textbook models um, we are now at real time. We are seeing the system evolving in real time. And you know that um, we were both on a seminar last week together on the future of finance in terms of financing whole system change. And I wanted to clarify um, the use of that terminology uh, because um, it was too uh, abstract. You see, abstraction... I wrote a, an editorial recently called 
uh, financialization, the global casino, and the illusions of abstraction. And you can be so abstract. Uh, oh, uh, so financing whole system change. Well, right now, we are in a whole system change. Humans didn't do anything about it. Nature did. It's, it's you know, getting our attention with the pandemic. So I agree with you that the pandemic, properly understood, is telling us that we must go forward with a greener, cleaner, a more equitable, distributed kind of society with not so much cruise ship travel, not so much tourism. You know, in, in my book, Politics of the Solar Age, I used an ad which I found and I reproduced, and its headline was, Stop Tourism. Make where you are a paradise. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the story that Fritjof Capra, uh, my good friend, we wrote this article together back, it was published back in March, called Pandemics, Lessons Looking Back from 2050. And we imagined that we were looking back from the year 2050. And how had the pandemic uh, changed uh, our societies and how we learned the lessons? Because we have a glorious future ahead of us if we learn the lessons. But the planet is not going to let us go on messing things up this way. I couldn't agree more with you and uh, both you and, and uh, Fritjof have been great and have had great influences in my life. I remember reading his book, The Tao of Physics, you know, that basically changed my entire view oh, of the world. And, me too. and so you, so would you like uh, to give our audience a, a summary of, uh, of that amazing editorial that you, the two of you wrote? Well, we, we just pointed out um, that uh, cities had become clean, the air had become breathable, because on all of the transportation, mostly public transportation, buses and stuff, uh, were all electric. And that the only electric cars that uh, people had for private use um, were basically, you know, for, trip, for short trips, uh, you know. And otherwise, um, we had electric rail and, uh, that cities um, had really gone into um, neighborhoods and neighborhoods had um, become far more cooperative and there was um, uh, babysitting rosters, you know, where people could share babysitting chores. And um, the, uh, the global financial system, which I always called the global casino, had collapsed of its own weight because all of those uh, long value chain um, had all failed. You know, we suddenly found that uh, all of our uh, pharmaceuticals uh, came from China and uh, China needed them for itself and the rest of the world <laughs> needed them. And so we realized the vulnerability of that kind of narrow globalization. And instead, we had the kind of globalization that John Maynard Keynes talked about. And that was, he always said, um, why would you want to ship around cakes and biscuits and cookies? Just ship around the recipes. 
And that's what I have done, you know, in all of my work in China. I've been going to China for many years, since 1986. And my message always was, please learn all the mistakes we are making. You can see them right now, you know, with the uh, automobiles choking the air in cities and all of that. And our message was, uh, let's exchange the recipes for cleaner, greener technologies and super energy efficiency and renewable agriculture and um, going um, where we can to differentiated currency systems. So you could uh, em empower all the barter systems uh, at the local level. There are many, many barter systems now. You can do it all online. There are many uh, barter systems now operating online. Um, and then um, ratify local currencies. So uh, like they did in Brazil under um, President Lula, about 200 uh, small towns in Brazil had their own local currencies and they cleared their own markets and employed their own people. And they didn't put any particular weight um, on the national currency, the real. And so the, the central bank said, great, you clear your own markets with your own local currency um, and you can take rate local taxes. And just like they did in the city of Curitiba, where all that began many, many years ago under Mayor Lerner, um, who also a friend of mine became governor of the state of Paraná. And, uh, and so uh, then you would have, uh, okay, you need a national currency for things that people can't make locally. So you always have a local currency and a barter system on one pocket and the national currency in another pocket. And then the national governments do need an international currency uh, where you do need to trade things which you desperately need. I mean, right now it's basically rare earths for cell phones like co cobalt, and, uh, and uh, molybdenum. And it's a very interesting new company that I think will be a winner, a startup in Vancouver um, called um, Deep, uh, oh gosh, uh, Deep, Deep um, uh, I'm not quite sure now of the, of the title of the company, but what they're saying is as we shift to electric, all electric transportation, we have to make sure that the elements, the rare earth elements for the batteries, uh, don't come out of the ground. We can't do any more surface mining, um, like mining in, for cobalt in Central uh, African Republic. Because uh, for the 1% of cobalt, you have to dig up 99% of rock and it all ends up in tailings, in rivers, and it's ridiculous. So this company, um, I wish I could remember the last name, but I, I'll tell you about it because it's ripe for early investors right now. And they discovered in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, uh, there is a large area where there are nodules of rare earths uh, all of the metals, the rare earths needed for cell phones, where nature has agglomerated them into the pure, they, they, they're called, um, they're called uh, uh, deep, 
natural, uh, uh, naturally aggregated uh, nodules. Um, and they're all ready to go. All you have to do uh, is to, to have a trawler and go pick them up uh, in trawler nets. So that's what that company is doing. And they, had, they did a wonderful life cycle analysis, um, um, which some of my friends got involved in, Corey uh, Krosinski, who's now at Yale. Um, and they said it was really the best life cycle analysis they'd ever seen. And they compare in this life cycle analysis the energy and material and um, ecological costs of mining um, on the surface for these minerals versus collecting the nodules from the deep ocean. And it's like a 90% energy efficiency saving. Don't you like that? So, you know, what, what we did in our last Green Transition Scoreboard, we pulled all this stuff together, and uh, it's called Transitioning to Science-Based Investing. And that's what you do, and you've been doing for many years. And that's what we advocate. But what we need now is more media um, understanding of this and you know we have a globally distributed tv show that goes to business schools and colleges but nothing yet we have not been able to penetrate mainstream media because the editors don't get it they don't have the knowledge they don't they never heard of halophytes you know um and they don't see why gdp um is now obsolete they still parrot the GDP numbers, although we have a, um, a new survey in the field now called Beyond GDP. It's the fourth one we've done with our partners at GlobeScan. It's in the field right now in 10 countries, and every time we've done this survey, we did the first one for the European Commission in 2007, when I was on the steering committee of this group called Beyond GDP, we're going to put this conference together, and um, the results of that survey I presented at the European Parliament um, with a standing only group of, uh, of delegates and everything um, for this whole thing we put together on Beyond GDP and all the, we, put, we brought all the statisticians from around the world who were doing statistics on health, on education, the environment, you know, quality, uh, workplace, uh, all of that kind of stuff. And we found that in every one of those countries, huge majorities understood that you couldn't uh, measure the progress of their country using a cash flow money model like the GDP. And uh, so they agreed with us um, that we should add all the available statistics on health, education, and environment. So we've got another one in the field now. This time, my company is not going to have to pay its half of the share. The GlobeScan people came to me two weeks ago and said, hey, Hazel, we've got this in the field now. We're using the same model that you used the last three surveys. And you don't have to pay for it now because it's so real. So we're about to report. Um, and they say, talking about media, they say they think that uh, they can get The Economist uh, to report on it. 
So we keep our fingers crossed. Wow, yeah, let's, let's do that because basically what we need is uh, reaching the tipping point um, mm -hmm. of people who have the more integrated mindset that yes. brings about the transformation. So it's a leadership question and media helps, of course. And what we see right now is the fight between the progressives and the regressives. And so the question is, how can we, and this is the last question for you, thank you for being so generous with your time, how can we accelerate this mind shift? Uh, the reason I'm asking that is, um, yes, we need to break the silos. So you have the social investors, then you have the environmental investors, then you have the technical investors. Uh, the advanced uh, technology and so on, the exponential tech, and then you have the politicians and the law. And so we need to bring them all together. This is where we all, both of you come together in terms of integrated investing. Yes. But how do yes. we do that? Because uh, there, there are very few people who get me, for example, you know, I'm an environmentalist and I am a, a socialist and I am an uh, artificial intelligence um, major, I invest in technology. And the yes. moment I try to bring them together, I get attacked by the silos. So yes. oh, same thing with me. <laughs> and and I, I think that unlike you with your two earned PhDs, um, I have no earned PhDs, but I do have four honorary PhDs. <laughs> so um, I, can, I feel very grateful that I was never put into a silo. But you earned the honorary PhDs as well. It doesn't mean, you know, they were not given to you because of your pretty eyes. You <laughs> no, they were mostly for, um, for my role in um, uh, technology assessment and, uh, and uh, those issues. And so it, it really is a matter now of uh, the general public following the children. You see, the children understand that. See, none of this is complicated. Um, what happens with all the people in the silos, uh, they have to make it complicated so they can get the next grant, you know. And that's what I call cutting butter with a chainsaw. <laughs> and with the Greta Thunbergs and all the young people um, realize that we live on a beautiful planet and it is powered by the free photons from our mother star, the sun. I mean, every indigenous society um, understood this from the start. A lot of them were sun worshippers. They knew that that was where our free energy came. That, 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 and that our first technology was photosynthesis. Plants figured out how to harvest the photons and turn them into carbohydrates. That is the basis of our food supply. And see, so it's all very simple, actually. Um, you just have to understand how the planet that you live on actually functions. And, you know, basically follow nature's principles. And, you know, one of our beloved partners um, is the Biomimicry Institute. And uh, my good friend, um, Janine Benyus. And I remember when her book came out on biomimicry, uh, I think about 1996, something like that. I, I bought dozens of copies. I was giving them to all my friends. Say, oh my God, she's got it. 
all you have to do um, is nature has successfully operated this planet, you know, uh, for 3.8 billion years. Um, here, and the human species is the most successful species on the planet. You know, and uh, we have now occupied every ecosystem, but we've done it in such a clumsy, ignorant way that um, we're causing the next extinction of other species, not realizing that we are one species um, and we are dependent on all the other species. And then, you know, and all this is really simple stuff. And um, the children get it. The millennials get it. You know, and the indigenous people get it. Anyone who's been really away from the textbooks and operating in the real world gets it. So if we have to be out in the streets the way people are right now all over the world, saying, look, this inequality and all of these um, things that are going on with racism and, uh, you know, I grew up in the city of Bristol in England. And I always wondered as a child why I walked by this statue of this guy Colston and everything in Britain was named Colston this and Colston that. And then I remember there was a street in Bristol called Black Boy Hill. And I began to realize that the town that I grew up in was this, built on the slave trade and that all the riches in Bristol and all of you know, the, the respected philanthropists in Bristol earned their money off slavery. And they sent ships from Bristol to West Africa and then over to the United States to drop the cargo. And then they brought back tobacco and sugar um, to Bristol. And, and so uh, even in Britain now, um, everybody now is saying, okay, it's time to actually, um, let's learn what we, would, we never learned in the textbooks. And let's, let's be honest with ourselves. And that's what the planet is teaching us. Well, what a beautiful way to, um, to end our interview. Thank you so much. Learn from nature, learn from plants and, uh, and replicate what they're teaching us. Thank you so much for being on our program. Oh, thank you, Marianne. And keep up your good work, my dear. It's a pleasure to, to be on your team. Thank you so much. It's an honor to know you, my dear friend, and uh, stay healthy and safe. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.